Welcome to Real Good Company, a show about real people building good companies that make a big impact. We go behind the scenes to get the good, the bad, and the ugly, so you can become a better leader and gain fresh wisdom for both your personal and professional life. I'm your host, Allison Trebridge. And I'm your host, Caitlin Crosby-Benward. And you're in, in Real, Real Good, good Company. company. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica Jackley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I have been literally dying to do this interview before you and I ever even met. I'm like, I have to have this woman on our podcast because you are you're just such a rock star in the impact world and the business world and the venture world and the startup world. Like you've kind of done it all. In the mom world. In the mom world, in the book world. <laughs> Thank you. No, I, I feel so, I'm so happy to be here and what a joy it was to get to actually meet up live a few weeks back and I felt yeah. such an instant connection. So this is, I was so looking forward to yet another conversation with you. Well, we were one of each other's first kind of getting back into IRL yes. first time meets. Like one of those, someone introduced us and we're like, but they, I think this needs to be a lunch. Can we do a lunch? We're vaccinated. Let's do a lunch. It was, it felt incredibly exciting. It would have, it would have anyway to meet up with you, but it felt very magical to get yeah. to be outside in the fresh air, like talking to a real human that's not somebody I live with and see 24 <laughs> seven. Totally. So Jessica is the founder CEO of a new company called Altruist, which I'm so excited to get into and talk about. But before we get there, I want to kind of go back in history a little bit and get some of your story because Jessica is also the founder of a little social enterprise you may have heard of called Kiva, which I mean, I worked in the anti-trafficking world for almost a decade and Kiva was always like the shining gold star of what was possible. I mean, can you take us back to kind of the the pre-Kiva launch days? Like how does one even begin to build something? Actually, first for, for anyone who doesn't know what Kiva is, can you tell us what it is? Absolutely. And that, uh, thank you for the kind words. It's so nice. Kiva is a platform where people, anybody with a credit card or PayPal account can go and lend $25 or more to an entrepreneur somewhere in the world, somewhere on the planet. Dozens of dozens. I mean, at this point, I'm not sure even how many countries are there. At one point, I remember noticing that there were more countries than the UN recognized when you accounted for lenders and borrowers together. But in terms wow. of borrowers, I, I know it's a few dozen, but I digress. So <laughs> lenders can lend. 25, 50, 100, whatever they'd like to an entrepreneur that needs needs a little bit of help, usually just a few hundred dollars in terms of their total loan amount. And then over time, that lender gets paid back. And what's special is the lender's not collecting any interest. So it's a 0% loan from lender to borrower and back. There's all these details that I can go into, but long story short, we, Kiva, I was going to say the royal we, but it's Kiva. <laughs> it is not me. Kiva ends up working with a wonderful collection of, at this point, I think a few hundred microfinance organizations all over the world. And they are the ones that actually find borrowers, administer loans, collector payments, do the hard work on the ground. And they do collect interest that's fair and appropriate for wherever they are and you know the circumstances that they and the borrowers are in. But that interest stays with the MFI. So it allows them to do mm. their work and have access to this amazing 0% loan capital from a community of friendly, forgiving, flexible lenders. So it's this beautiful exchange of information and money, and it's done in a charitable, really 
positive way. Like I, I believe, and I've seen yeah. again and again. So I feel lucky to have gotten to be a part of the very beginning. And I'm, I'm happy to tell you about that. I can still think back and remember, gosh, probably it was probably like 2007 or so, but maybe 2006. But the first time I went on to Kiva, gave a $25 loan to an entrepreneur and like looking through all of the profiles and getting to like imagine their story and their circumstance and get to be a part of them building their business. I mean, it was a truly, truly magical, deeply profound experience. And anyway, tell me, tell me how did you- you're making my day. That's so nice to hear. I mean, in my dream world, that's what it is for everybody, right? This like- yeah very intentional connection where the parts of the the entrepreneur's story that we can make available are there. And somebody finds a really special connection. So that's great. I'm so glad that you did. What year was this that it all began and what kind of drew you to give us the origin story? Sure, sure, sure. So I'll go back even before it began, which the, the official launch date was in October of 2005. So it was funny you know, before anybody was even using the word crowdfunding, we were like, it's going to be this thing where a lot of people put a little bit of money. <laughs> wow. Ahead <laughs> of your time. You yeah. say it long, long, ver- the long version of things. But so going back much farther, growing up, I was very interested in the business. If you, I mean, I don't know that I would even use that word, I would have used that word, but the business of doing good, the business of service. So I grew up in a beautiful, wonderful loving family. And we went to church every Sunday and it was a super positive experience for me where I learned the good, bad, and confusing about um, scripture and the story of Jesus. And I basically thought from a very young age that my job is to show up in the world and help God, like to do Mm. whatever God's work is. And I got from different Bible, Bible school, Sunday school lesson that my job was to show up and serve the poor. What you do for the least of these you do for me. Now, I also remember hearing early on the poor will always, always be with us. And I remember Mm. like, just, it really, it, it messed with me because I thought, well, what the heck I've just been given the world's greatest homework assignment, like for life, like go serve the poor. That's how you connect with something bigger than yourself. And that's what we're all supposed to go do. If you are hearing this message and you can be helpful, you should go be helpful. Yeah, And that's what it's all about. Right. But then to be also told in advance, by the way, the poor will always be with us. I remember thinking, well, what the heck I'm going to fail. I know it's not going to make a difference. Yeah. I was baffled and yet I still wanted to try to figure it out. So I, I tried all sorts of stuff growing up. I volunteered, I, you know, collected spare change and gave that away. I did whatever, whatever is asked of me. Now, usually the thing that's asked is money, right? So the, the, the scenario, the, the scenario that the relationship that I had with this calling, right? It sounds maybe naive and silly to think of naming it that, but I, even as a young kid, I felt like this was my job. This is my calling. And I, as I looked out into the world to find what it was I was supposed to do here, here's what happened. A lot of great, well-intentioned organizations would tell their stories of sadness and suffering and desperation and hopelessness and ask me, the potential donor to feel bad enough to whip out my wallet and get like, it seemed to me, that was the agreed upon way, the, the cycle, right? The emotional cycle, like feel right. enough so that you give, because that's the thing. That's what we need from you. Yeah. And that, that, that's what I did again and again. And this d- deep desire for an interaction where I could be a helper and a healer and be of service to another human being or group of human beings. It became instead of that deep interaction, a transaction. And I basically would like throw whatever tiny money, like we're talking dollars, right? I was never a high net worth donor. <laughs> I was like the kid with the paper route. Anyway. I would give what I could and then I'd feel temporarily better. And then I would feel terrible again, whenever the next 
sad story came at me, which was guaranteed because that's the reward for giving. Usually you get another sad right. story. Story. <laughs> right. Right. That, right. Like, thank you so much for your money. Give us more, help more. We see that you have capacity, which you know, anyway. So yeah. that cycle just was like, it, I didn't like it. And it, it kind of hardened my heart, which is a hard thing to do. <laughs> I felt a little desensitized. I just figured I knew the stories when I saw them coming, I would kind of preempt it, give, you know, I didn't want to listen, you know, in a mm. way that I had for so many years. I just mm. wanted to sort of jump ahead, cut to the chase and keep going on with my day, kind of buy my right to do that. Right. So fast forward, fast forward, I go to college and I study philosophy because I loved being challenged to ask big questions. I, I just, I was, I thought it was the best thing ever. I studied political science because I thought, well, maybe the world messed up because the people in power aren't making the right rules. If I understand that, maybe stuff can get fixed. And then I also studied poetry just because I love it and it's beautiful and it's good to have beauty. I didn't ever take a business course. I was very skeptical of business and entrepreneurship because I saw the world as a place where the people who were helping almost all of them, it seemed to me, were working at places that were called nonprofits that were the opposite of businesses. Right. So I was suspicious. Right. I thought it was good guys and bad guys. The nonprofits were the good guys. The for-profits were the bad guys. So I wanted to be on the first team. So I wow. I was, and, and entrepreneurs, I thought entrepreneurs were like the worst because they were starting <laughs> businesses. They were like the gang leaders. Like I did not want to be around them. I, they were the worst of the worst. So that's how I saw the world. I go through college, I graduate, I get a job as a temp at temp, temp admin at Stanford. And it just so happened it was in the Stanford graduate school of business, but I thought, well, I'll just protect myself from this dangerous place. And these dangerous people, like I won't let them get to me. That's it's funny. I actually, I remember during that time. So I, I had that, that was my day job. But then at, at night I would go home to uh, this house for teen moms where I lived as the house mom. And I was like, well, at very least I'll stay grounded and I can actually do real good and like serve this community of young women and their babies and like to drive them to school and the daycare and like feed them dinner. So I, I had a long 24 hour workday at home and at work. But anyway, I would go in like very wary of things to the business school. But then one day, you know, sooner than later, I realized, wait, this is a place where people are thinking about doing good stuff in the world often, right? With yeah. just utilizing business skills and entrepreneurial thinking. So I thought, okay, I found my people. This is great. They're using not just their hearts, but their heads in this like incredible way to get shit done, to move yeah. resources and rally people. So I loved it. And I wanted to figure out how I could be of use. So I, I started to just become a sponge and crash whatever I could, lectures, whatever. I would go to office hours. And if there are no real students there, I, I mean, again, I was like filing, right? And I'd show up and be like, can you teach me about pricing? Can, what about, I have a question about this. So anyway, one day I stayed after work, heard Dr. Ma- Dr. Muhammad Yunus speak. It was three years before he would win the Nobel Peace Prize wow. and his pioneering work in modern microfinance. And I yeah. thought, that's it. That's what I want to do. I'm going to figure out a way to do that. So I quit my job and I begged my way into this internship in East Africa wow. with a little organization, a nonprofit doing, it wasn't even loans, but I was not the business mind at the time. It was grants. I was like, it's fine. It's close enough. <laughs> uh, it was grants to entrepreneurs for business creation. And so I thought I'll figure out the whole repayment thing later, but I just want to see what this looks like. So I, I plunked myself down in East Africa. And for a few months, I traveled throughout Kenya and Uganda and Tanzania. And I interviewed individuals who'd received this hundred dollars and it was the best. It was game changing, wow. heart changing, everything. And while I was there, I started to ask questions that would become the questions that led to Kiva. Like, what if 
I stayed in touch with these new friends who I met, the goat herder and the seamstress and the farmer and all the people that, again, received this $100 grant to buy a few more goats or chickens or whatever it was. What if I stayed in touch, number one? What if, since nobody had asked me for a handout, what they wanted was a loan. That was the thing they felt ready for after that $100 grant. That what if I and my friends and family could rally together and provide those loan funds? Wouldn't that be interesting? And like, what if we utilize technology to make this happen? Now, that third question I was able to ask and find answers to because of my co-founder, Matt. Mm. So he was back in San Francisco and I'd call him from, you know, a mud hut in the middle of Uganda and say, here's, here's the goat herder. Meet, you know, meet him. No way. That led to this very tiny project that became the pilot round of loans for Kiva in the spring of 2005, we had seven entrepreneurs and their loan needs of like 300 or $500 up on the site. We spammed friends and family and said, do you want to chip in a few dollars that is, you know, here and there to help meet these loan needs? We think they'll pay it back. We, it'll, we hope it's really fun. We think it will be. And I, they were all people I had met. Yeah. And over the next six months, those people were paid. We took <laughs> in October 05, all the loans were paid. We took the word beta off of the site and we launched for real. And then I'll super fast forward now. That first year, Kiva facilitated 500,000 in loans. The pilot round had been 3,000, but the first year was 500K. The next year was, God, 15 million. The next year was 40. The next was a Yeah. Was that just insane to see it? It was completely, completely insane because there were so many parts of it that were totally unknown. We had, we were what ifing, right? We were like, "Mm, will people pay it back? will anybody want to lend their money for free? Like here's 25 bucks, get it back to me when you can. And nine and a half months later, they get 25 bucks back. It's not a donation. So they didn't get a tax write-off. They got their money back, but it wasn't with interest. Like, is this a thing? Would anyone care to do that? Also, would anyone, you know, there's so many other, there were so many other ways to do good. Would this even fit into that category in people's minds? Like a charitable loan? What? So there, there was a lot that was new. I remember- I think Moses Onyango, one of our partners in Uganda, was one of the first people that I had seen that was like blogging from a tiny village in Uganda. It was, it was, there was a lot that was crazy and fun. And so it was hard to wow. even, it was hard to, to feel the pace of change with it. I feel like now as a parent, I relate to <laughs> the way that parents always see their children as little tiny cute babies, even when they're grown and they remember yeah, yeah. those days. Yeah. Always, always just felt like this fun idea that we talk about, around, you know, around the kitchen table, even after it was hundreds of millions and billions of, you know, dollars in loans. So. Oh my gosh. How did Kiva get funded? Like, how were you guys actually funded as the platform? Well, so we stepped back after that pilot round of loans and thought, should this be a nonprofit or a for-profit, which is a whole other conversation, but in short, the capital and the supporters and the things that, the things that we needed were much more readily available as a nonprofit, as a 501c3. Additionally, even though there have been times when Kiva has been sustainable, which is the social sector word for profitable, right? <laughs> <laughs> unlocked. It's just different words. Um, <laughs> and even though the difference is it didn't lie in our pockets, it just went back into the organization, which is not a, a, it's a, it's a smart thing to do anyway at those stages. So, but at the time there was still this weird cultural baggage. I mean, there still is today, but it's so different. Yeah. Like if you wanted to do good, well, you should be a nonprofit. Why would you be right. a business? It was very revolutionary to think of, you know, from the get-go starting a business just to actually have a social mission. Anyway, 
we got donations from friends and family to just stay afloat. I didn't take a salary for two years. Wow. I remember we like, nothing was off limits because it was our, just this deeply personal dream. I remember the logo was designed by a friend who we couldn't afford to pay, but we gave him an old guitar of mats. I mean, <laughs> like awesome. it was really, I think the yoga, the logo was used until like a year and a half ago or something. So it lasted. I remember the very first press we got was a Wall Street Journal article. And it was because, you know, in 2006, about a year after we had, well, not even a year, a few months after we had launched, actually, it was like under six months. So it was winter of 06. Dr. Eunice had won the Nobel Prize for- yeah his work. And, it yeah. bought, and so there was all this press on UNES appropriately. So it was wonderful and exciting, but so we just so happened to be in the right place at the right time. And that article ended with one sentence. You too can be a microfinancier, <laughs> like go to keep.org. And so we had plot, and one of our first board members and one of our first donors was a guy that read that article. So, you wow. know, they're serendipitous person by person by person supporting the work. Wow. Yeah. And it still functions as a nonprofit to this day. It does. It does. It's interesting. Like I, I went back to business school to Stanford <laughs> a few years after, afterwards, after Kiva, you know, had begun to go as a paying student, not a mooching staffer. Right. <laughs> and I remember how so many of those lessons became applicable to Kiva's journey. Like I, I'd learned stuff in class, but then I'd go try out evenings and weekends, you know, making Kiva go. Mm. I remember feeling validated at every step of the way that we could have, it seemed to me like we were able to get the best of both worlds by being a 501c3 and accessing mm. the goodwill and the capital from so many great sources that, you know, yeah. still support Kiva today even. And yet we could think like business anytime it made sense to do so. We could, we could think about, for example, adding at the point of purchase, right? Right. When customers, lenders would check out, yeah. we could say, Hey, all of this money is going to the borrower. All of it will come back if they repay and they probably will. Repayment rates are like 99% you know, percent. Sometimes they've been even higher than that, which is nuts. Wow. But we'd say, would you also like to kind of add a tip to this and help? I remember, I remember box, clicking right? that box. Yes. Right, right. And that at, that at times has covered, has covered costs. It's crazy. Wow. I mean, of course, when you're growing, you don't want to just let that happen all the time. So then we'd push past that and need more funds to grow more quickly. But yeah. the support from lenders sometimes with a $3 loan, a $3 donation on top of the loan or a $5 donation on top of the loan, that would actually cover what we needed because wow. of what we were doing. Wow. What a wild thing to be a part of building and growing and like, and just your vision for it. Tell me about now the kind of the harder times of leaving Kiva and why you decided to leave and what that was like. Absolutely. So there I was, this philosophy major. <laughs> and I love it. I like to my kids study random stuff <laughs> um, and then figure it out and translate it later. So there I was, I had accidentally become an entrepreneur. It was yeah. never something I thought I would be. Like I said, I was, I mean, obviously my, I've changed my tune, but for such a while I thought, ugh, that's not me. It's like, I don't want to be that. <laughs> and then I realized they're just ways of thinking and tools and a, and a perspective on the world it could be very centered on problem solving and solution finding and just making imaginary ideas in your head, like little, you know, pictures that you had in your head, real things in the world. Yeah. There's so much life-giving and redemptive to me about the whole thing. But anyway, so there I was a few years into Kiva and I realized, oh my gosh, I can be not just somebody that started this one thing, but maybe I can build more stuff. Maybe I can define myself beyond this. Maybe my identity doesn't just have to be as the founder of this, of, of, of Kiva. Mm. And at the same time, I was going through a very personal t- 
tough time um, separating and eventually divorcing from my co-founder and husband mm. Matt, mm. <laughs> at the time, my ex-husband. So I had to make a decision to step away from both a marriage and the startup that was the first thing that I got to do and build. And it was, it was really hard. I mean, I won't skip ahead to why it's all good and okay. And the, the timing ended up being beautiful and perfect and all yeah. for the best, but yeah. you know, spoiler, it all, it all worked out. But anyway, <laughs> um, like, at the time it was really rocked my world because you know, there I was doing something I never, never thought I would do. I mean, nobody walks down the aisle and then thinks that it, it will end that way. Right. And then also I had things been different. I would have probably stayed at Kiva maybe another year at least because yeah. it was going so well and it was so great. Now yeah. it was mature enough and strong enough at that point that it didn't need me as, as, mm. um, you know, it was okay on its own. Like I had built something that other people cared enough about and yeah. were running beautifully. It was great. So but I, I probably would have stayed a little longer. So that felt really difficult. I also certainly emotionally was going through so much that I didn't feel like my strongest, most confident, optimistic person. So what I did was I, I, I stepped away. I, first of all, I went and I worked in the field a while because I mm. areas of expertise were sort of East and then West Africa because I had Swahili and French language skills. And I just, wow. I just, it's my favorite thing. Yeah. So I spent some time there. And then I ended up fully leaving the organization and I went and did like a little sabbatical in Mexico for mm. what, what was it like two, two, two or three months. And I basically was just by myself and I surfed every day and I called my counselor and my therapist and worked through stuff. And I journaled like tomes and I, I recalibrated and yeah. um, near the end of my time, in this home on the beach in Mexico that my dear friends had let me just like crash. in. it was such a gift for my mm. soul and all else. I got an email from one of my favorite old professors back at Stanford who had since become the Dean who said, Hey, do you want to write some case studies for us? What are you doing? What are you doing these days? Where are you? And so I got this assignment to go around the world and write a bunch of case studies on amazing women entrepreneurs. No way. It's like my other, I mean, is that, it's, it's the best, right? I mean, that's wow. how Kiva was born. I got to sort of come back to it a few years later wow. with a different journey. Yeah. So they're, they're still out there. A lot of them. I'm sure I probably studied yeah. one. And when I was in business school, because yeah. all of those get circulated, I always wonder who writes those things too. They're like, Oh my gosh. Compelling really storytelling. Oh my gosh. Totally. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. But then you have to leave out certain things so that the reader yeah. has to figure it out, right? You yeah. have to kind of like, make it and then pull parts out so that you guess and can, yeah, it was hard. It was a really wonderful year and a challenging, like a great, a good challenge and intellectual challenge for me. Yeah. And I'll I'll mention for those not in business school, it's, it's a fascinating way that a number of business schools teach entrepreneurship and business is that you get these case studies of real life examples where you read it. And then in class, you debate over what you would do when faced with the problem that these real entrepreneurs had been faced with, but you don't know the end or the outcome. So it's, it's a way to kind of practice the creative problem solving. Totally. And, and a lot of them, almost all of them are like real, real companies, real stories, real people, but sometimes they'll even change the name so that it's a very famous company. They'll make it something else. So you can guess what would have happened. And anyway, it's, it's, it's a, I love it. I love learning that way. And it was a great thing to get the other side of the, go on the other side of the curtain and try to write, write them. Yeah. Anyway, I know we're, we're kind of in the, yeah, lost in the story here. So that's what happened. That's how I left. And the summary statement I'll say is just that even though it was 
it was going through the fire, man. I learned that I learned that I was more than any single job or venture, mm. any single relationship, any anything like that. I I I had always known that, and I had grown up knowing who I was as you know <laughs> an actual standalone person without any qualification or without having to do or be or earn anything. I was worthy in and of myself just as a yeah. human being. And I got to come back to that, which is a gift. It makes me think of, I don't know if you've ever read any Richard Rohr, but his book, Falling Upward, where he talks yes. about first half of life and how we you know, focus on the container and kind of establishing who we are in the world. And then when you enter the second half of life, it's like the breaking down of identity. And I certainly went through that after after business school. I took this sabbatical that really was a really hard time and really forced me to kind of unravel that my identity is not what I do. My value is not what I contribute in the world. Right. And long-term such a gift, but during the, the time of going through that process, it's a real brutal kind of identity reckoning. Yeah. Yeah. You want to cling to something. You don't ever want to just let go and kind of float in the <laughs> the solitude of just being a living, breathing person. And that's enough and that's okay. And that's, yeah. you know, and it, it's hard too, when it's actually really fun and you have ambition and you love your work and you want to go do more stuff mm. to, to take that pause. I'm so glad you got that experience as well. Yeah. Yeah. And before we jump into what you're building now on a personal level, can you tell us about meeting your husband yes. today, meeting Reza? So way back in college and, and after, I didn't have a lot of like life experience. And so I remember I, I met and I fell in love with Matt during college and then we got married and I had never been a, an adult in the world post-college on my own. And so there I was, 29 and divorced. I was at the time still very tender about that. Like I felt very bad about that. Like it, it was this failure that I walked around with. And so I didn't exactly feel like getting out there and dating and I hadn't dated since <laughs> college and I didn't really know how to date. Like I, you yeah. know, yeah. So anyway, a friends and um, friends of ours, mutual friends introduced Reza and me. And it was just, it was just the most incredible thing. Like having gone through all the stuff before, you know, at 30, I felt pretty sobered and I, I kind of, mm. I knew what I wanted. I knew what I valued. I knew what did matter to me and what didn't. And to, be given this gift of just meeting the love of my life and knowing so instantly. Really? really yeah. Oh, we met, we knew before we actually, we had emails and phone calls because we were both traveling so much um, and we're out of the country. And then finally we got to have our first date and it was, a, we had breakfast and then we're like, we kind of want to keep hanging out. And he had a lecture. So I went and listened to his lecture and I was like, oh, are you kidding me? This is the most <laughs> brilliant person I've ever heard speak. Like he had such a great vocabulary. I was so impressed. <laughs> and then actually, wait, this is too funny not to say at the end of the lecture, he's signing books or whatever. And there's a, there's this man that comes up and he's like, Reza, I, I just want you to, to meet my son. His name is Reza. And we named him after you. No. And I'm like, do you have children out like in the world that you haven't told me about? But here it was this man and his wife who just like loved Reza so much. And no. felt, yeah, they had named his son after him. And Reza later, we just laughed so much. Like, could you have planned that on a first date? Like, that's amazing. This guy's so amazing. People name their kids after him. That's amazing. Anyway, and then, and then my brother had a graduation party and he came to that. So it was like a 12 hour, just, just a day together. And it was so wonderful. And then, yeah, about a year later, we got married and we were pregnant with our twins. And it was funny because we, we had a surprise wedding and at the wedding, 
you know, we're saying our vows, I'm crying my face off and I'm 12 weeks pregnant with twins, which, you know, it's first pregnancy. You could, couldn't actually tell that much <laughs> when I'm like five seconds pregnant with the other ones, you can tell immediately. But anyway, during the vows, I'm like, you're going to be the best father. And there's a gasp from our friends who no. were already shocked because they thought they were just coming to a party and we're like, psych, we're getting married. Woo-hoo. And then during the vows, I'm like, and I love you and we're pregnant. And they're like, what? So it was three oh surprises, marriage, like wedding that night. And then we're pregnant and it's twins. It was a little bit traumatic. People were like, what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> so that was that. And then 10 years later, there are four kiddos. I couldn't be more thankful. He's the greatest partner in all things and my favorite human. And I am thankful for every day. Don't get me started on him. I won't stop talking. <laughs> he's the love of my life. And I, um, oh. I'm just crazy about him. I just, I'm crazy wow. about him. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful and, and just and so encouraging to hear. And I love, I get so inspired by love stories like that. Yeah. I think we all need to be reminded of what's possible. And in unlikely places and in unlikely yeah. everything. I mean, here I was this conservative Christian girl who had gotten divorced, felt like I had this scarlet letter on me or something, and then fall in love with this, you know, loud Muslim guy who is very scary to a lot of my, <laughs> a lot of my, I don't know. It was just, it didn't make sense at first to some friends and family. And then of course now everybody just like loves him more than me. It's, it's, it's just the best. I'm so grateful. And I'm just happy that we were both open to kind of this unexpected mm. and amazing thing. So, wow. Wow. And then having four children, coming out of doing the work that you had done. Tell us how that led you into the startup you're working on today. Yes. So I have Cyrus and Jasper. They're identical twin boys. They're nine. They're hilarious. I have Asa and I have another boy who is six and just the sweetest thing that has ever walked the face of the earth. And then I have our little firecracker baby girl, Soraya, who is 16 months (laughs) taking over the entire house. And I grew up with such a wonderful, well, I already, it's great. I referenced, I can reference something I already talked about, but I grew up with a lot of service and volunteering in my life. Yeah, I felt bad about how little we've done as a family. It's not for lack of effort, but volunteer opportunities, especially with a handful of little kids, they're hard to find. They're hard to see. It's just really hard to pull off. And yet what's, what's been really, I mean, there's so much to talk about, about interfaith action and interfaith interfaith family, right? Our multi-faith family. We have both depth where we actually, we go to church together and we do a lot of conversation and prayer and stuff at home. We also try to bring our kids breadth where we Mm -hmm. do like religious literacy kind of education. We have sort of, it's really nice when you have an encyclopedic Reza to say, Hey, talk, say the story about that, you know, about the Buddha or say the story about that native American, you know, origin thing where the guy pops out of the pea pod and that like, he knows all of it. What? So all I have to do is sort of gently frame an issue or an idea. And then Reza goes into his, like, you know, he can talk for a lot forever about anything. So anyway, we've been doing that with the kids and it's great, but what really matters to us is what it means. What are these values that mm. you share me? What does it mean to believe in compassion? What does it mean to believe in generosity? What does it mean to believe in these things? So service is essential and it's mm. been really hard logistically to do. So I thought, yeah. Wouldn't it be great, especially during quarantine, wouldn't it be great if we could do something sitting here in the living room for the next hour? And I started to look at how we were accessing the world at all during that season. Mm. And it was by these, these, anything that came in the mail, right? So subscription boxes for science stuff and crafts yeah. or whatever else would show up. My kids would tear into them, love them, do whatever the thing was. 
And then that was it. The experience stopped. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could combine sort of reinvent, repackage, redeliver volunteering that's kid friendly, Mm. that has context kind of wrapped around it, where it's not just, hey, let's go do this activity, but you can actually get some help explaining tough stuff like homelessness or, you know, issue of clean water or whatever else it is. And you could do it in an hour in your living room with your whole family present. Wouldn't that be great? So I made that, I made that altruist springs monthly subscription, you know, boxes that have, they have four pieces to it. There's a, there's mini books, four little mini books. One of them is just about learning about the issue, sort of like a primer, you know, mm-hmm. homelessness is the first box. So homelessness and, and housing 101. Here are the fun facts, the not so fun facts, answers to tough questions. Here's like basically what's going on in the world. It's truthful, but it's not terrifying. It's it's uh, it's real stuff. And it's yeah. optimistic because there's always reason to have hope. And part of that yeah. is highlighting the solutions that are happening in the world. So learning is part one. Part two is connecting and building empathy. In this first box example, there's a little mini house that you build out of these tiny concrete blocks. I designed this little structure with a miniatures company. So, so it's, cool. you know, everyone has Legos, but it's different than that. You're, you're actually working with the most common building material in the world. And you get to see what an, an actual house that's kind of representative of majority, majority world housing might look like. Wow. So that's sort of the connection piece. Then there's an actual volunteer project where you're doing something that helps somebody else, right? Or helps the planet. So for this first box, it's a keychain that is mailed that kids make with this beautiful little vegan leather cord and beads, wooden beads. And then they make a little picture and card and they put it in an envelope that we include and send it off to our partner, New Story. Oh, no way. Yeah, they're the best, right? Oh my gosh, we're having Brett on the podcast soon. That's so Oh my gosh, he's the greatest. Well, so there you go. So Brett and company, Brett and team, take those keychains that all our little altruist community kids make and they're going to hand the first house key that wow. families they've just built a home for. Wow. In Mexico. So it's this, yeah, it's a, it's a small, oh, it's beautiful. So, yeah. And then the very last step is a give part where there's $5 out of each box. It's already set aside to be donated to new story or to other nonprofits that do housing work that are sort of that we choose. And then kids get to do a very quick, like 30 second experience online where they get to pick. Do you want to give to new story now that you've mm. known about their work and have just volunteered with them? Do you want to give to a a domestic organization that does, you know, lobbying and rentals and very different kind of theory of change. Yeah. Or do you want to contribute to Habitat for Humanity, which is, you know, everywhere doing everything. So that's the experience. It is just a joy. I am, I, I have a lot of reason to be tired <laughs> with, with, <laughs> my, with my kids, but I'm telling you, like I, it's this renaissance for me. I'm wow. I stay up late and I'm loving building this. It feels just what I, what I'm meant to do right now. Wow. Wow. What does wild success look like for altruists? What are you dreaming about? So we really get it right with kids under 10 and families. We expand to teens and we expand to anyone and everyone so that we sort of, we reinvent what volunteering can be so that it's accessible anytime, anywhere to anyone. And they, Mm. they can, they can do it in their own time on their own schedule, but in a way that is not just designed for them. Like we really try to focus on what's the volunteer experience like, but also is of course, incredibly empowering and helpful to nonprofits and serves as sort of a bridge to greater activism. So everyone's volunteering. That's the vision, right? If if I can make stuff so that, I mean, it's crazy. Like when you start to look at the space of volunteering, volunteerism, it's kind of the wild west, first of all, but also 
people are so hungry for this. So 90% of us say we want to volunteer more, but we don't because of some of the reasons I mentioned. It's scheduling. It's like, it's just hard to know where to begin. And what do you do? You have to reach out and figure it out yourself. And it's really hard to do. And it's, it's like super important for parents as well. Parents actually volunteer more than any other sort of segment that you look at. So that's the place to start for a number of reasons, but I hope to be able to stay in this for, you know, indefinitely, right? And any, however many years it takes to yeah. build something that, that's really a bridge for people to get out and, and do so much more. I just got chills thinking about the fact that you grew up volunteering and that's what led you down the path of creating Kiva and now this and all of the incredible work you've done and how you're just kickstarting that cycle on a global scale. It's so, I hope so. I hope so. Oh, it's so beautiful. I so appreciate it. I feel I'm, I'm, I'm just having the most fun with this. It's, it's so fun. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, if our listeners want to learn more or connect with you, where can they, where can they go? Where can they get a box? Are you, well, are you open for orders? I'm so glad you asked. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's, it's live. We shipped our first boxes and we can have a go and oh my gosh. Research. so it's just altruists. A-L-L. We, we misspell it. A-L-L-T-R-U-I-S-T-S. <laughs> Altruist.com. Dot com. Altruist.com. Yeah. You are truly an inspiration. And I just so appreciate you taking the time to come on and tell your story. And I'm also so excited to get these boxes out to a bunch of my friends. I'm so grateful to you. And the love is mutual. It's such a joy and a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for recording it. Thanks for <laughs> one of our conversations be shareable. This is so nice. I just, I appreciate you so much. And I appreciate this podcast. So thank you. Thank you, friend. Thank you for joining this episode of Real Good Company, a show about real people building good companies that make a big impact. Music from this episode is probably from one of my old demos. We hope you like it. (laughs) And Megan Schwindling is our producer. Thanks for joining and always remember to stay in real good company.